You're listening to Wake Up Call with Christina Previtt. I'm the CEO and co-owner of New Jersey Divorce Solutions, a law firm located in Edison, New Jersey. I've been practicing exclusively divorce and family law for the past 16 years. Everyone has a story. I interview them. Wake Up Call is an opportunity for you to hear inspiring stories from people who are making hard decisions, overcoming their fears, and living their most authentic life. All right, everybody, we are here. You're with um, Christina Previtt, another edition of Wake Up Call Live. And we're talking once again about one of my very favorite subjects as of late is the Johnny Depp versus Amber Heard trial, um, which I'm a little sad it's over. What are we going to talk about after this? (laughs) I don't know. I'll have to find maybe some other celebrities will get jammed up and we can talk about them. Um, so joining me for another roundtable series are my friends and colleagues. Um, I'm just going to go down the list here and then, you know, you guys can probably do a better job of introducing yourselves, but joining me is Danielle Laughlin. She is the founding attorney at Sage Business Council in Georgia. Also Derek Farrell, who is of counsel um, to the Delaware office of Lebaton and Sucharo. Did I say that right, Derek? Yes. Okay. Had a little trouble with that one. And he does M&As, something very foreign to me, but um, that's what he does. And Sylvia Breidewich, one of my New Jersey friends and colleagues, um, she has the, she's the founder of the Breidewich Law Firm in New Jersey and does exclusively divorce and family law. So thank you guys for joining me today. Um, and, you know, I'm going to ask you for your input, you know, it has less to do with your experience as attorneys, although, uh, especially for those of you who have some experience with family law, maybe either in your personal lives or in your professional lives, either one. Um, it's really to talk specifically about domestic violence, you know, what experiences you may have had with that. And I, it's kind of hard to ignore the personal side of things. We've all had different experiences in our lives as we've been watching this relationship unfold so publicly between Johnny Depp and Amber Heard. It's really impossible not to kind of think about some of your own personal experiences and maybe what you've encountered in your practice, because especially doing family law, we encounter a lot of people that are involved in domestic violence situations. Maybe you've handled domestic violence restraining orders. So we have some experience with that. I, I would say that overall, I think in general, the public doesn't really understand it, the complex nature of a domestic violence relationship. Um, would you agree with that? And and I guess in general, I want to hear what your c- initial reactions are to the verdict that we heard yesterday. So I do, I do think, you know, practicing family law, um, this was, I mean, we were not a stranger to hearing a lot of this stuff that we were hearing. A lot of it was, you know, over the top because you're talking about celebrities, but when you bring it back to what we do, this is triggering for everybody. Everybody has some personal experience with it, whether it is with a client, whether it's it's yourself or a family member, but it was, it was so different to see a family law trial on TV like this on court TV, because we never see that. This is all stuff that we see in our small towns, our small court systems, and it's never broadcast so out there. And while this was a defamation suit, this was domestic violence. You know, this is what we were talking about. And that was the big topic of conversation. And it was just really, 
the verdict I found very interesting because it was just, you know, we were all kind of taking hedging bets. Like, what do you think it's going to do? Are they just going to dismiss everybody's? Or are they going to make everybody responsible for everything and even it out? And I think that in this particular case, the jury loved him and they did just did not like her. I don't know if it mattered what she said. And what does that mean for someone who does consider themselves a victim or someone who does consider themselves um, does not consider themselves a perpetrator. You know, it's it's a lot. And we see it all the time. You know, you have, yeah, we do. there's never a clear cut. I shouldn't say never. Very rarely is there a clear cut. This is what happened. This person's a perpetrator. This person's a victim. Because it's such, it's an emotional, loving, passionate, toxic dynamic. It's not, it's not a contract. You know, it's not like we can say A was done, B was done, result is C. It's, so intertwined and emotional and tangled it's it's just a mess <laughs> it's just yeah. a mess yeah i think that pretty much captures it and i think that parrots what a lot of people think but i'm curious to hear what danielle and derek think too yeah well um i'm not a practicing family lawyer so i definitely viewed this from a different lens more from a uh, i think personal experience and and certainly um other friends that do practice uh, family law. And I, I actually do participate in some divorce litigation when there is a business owner involved. And I uh, represent the business while the business owner has their own representation in that divorce. And I can see this play out, I think, from an intimate third party perspective, um, not being, you know, the lawyer for either party in those disputes. And what I noticed uh, about this case, uh, just right off the bat, is exactly what you said. I, um, I, it was more about the personalities, I mm -hmm. think, than it was about the actual facts of the case. And sadly, for Amber Heard, I believe that she allowed, or maybe was instructed and coached to um, put on more of a show than was necessary for her to prove her case. And I think that ultimately led the jury to discredit a lot of what she was saying. And um, that to me is sad. Uh, I don't, I don't know that many victims will experience that same thing, but certainly um, it was sort of, it had the opposite effect, I think, than what she and her legal team and maybe even her PR team were trying to achieve. And sadly, I do think that um, because of that, there was a negative message to victims of domestic violence. But also, you know, I firmly do believe that Johnny was also a victim of domestic violence. And I think that, like you both have alluded to in family law, it's often that intertwining of two personalities that makes a relationship toxic. And those individuals don't necessarily show that toxicity and abuse in other relationships. So I think the, you know, the Kate Moss testimony and the fact that Johnny had had these prior relationships that didn't have any public abuse allegations to me was given a lot more credit than it really should have been given because I do believe that the specific personalities and circumstances play a major role in abuse and how it actually cycles in that that drama triangle, you know, between two people. 
Yeah. Um, I, yeah, I agree with everything you've said too. Um, Derek, I'm really interested to hear your take too, being the male in the group. <laughs> Look, I mean, I, I, I kind of this from a very different perspective from others, because as you point out, I don't practice in family law. That said, I went through probably one of the messiest divorces of anyone that I've known. I'm probably, I don't know, 30 to 50 different hearings in at this point uh, with, with various matters. And at one point went pro se which I don't necessarily recommend. Um, went, went back, found a great lawyer who I'm really happy with. She did a great job. But I, I think that puts me in a different uh, perspective than others. I've dealt with the TRO stuff personally on my own and with representation uh, with the, the ex parte. But with, with respect to this trial, I think the biggest mistake Amber made was over-promising and under-delivering. When you go through this trial, it was clear to me, I don't know if others have this view, but that she seemed to be clearly lying about certain things and seemed to be very clearly overstating it. And it's, I think as soon as you go down that path and lose your credibility, even if you were in fact abused, the jury's just not going to believe you anymore. And she didn't have anybody that came in to back her up on you know what, what she actually said. And so I think that's what she just beat herself. All she had to do was keep this simple. And I think Johnny did a good job of that. Like, presumably there was more violence in this relationship than what he presented and probably than what she presented. I, you know, there's probably a lot else going on there. And you know, he stuck to the key areas where he seemed to have like the finger issue, right? He, he's focused on a few very specific things. And I think that was a much better strategy uh, than the one that, that she did, which I think really hurt her. And in fact, we, when we look at the verdict, where, where did they find her? It was a statement about them trashing the hotel, the, not the hotel, the penthouse. Right. He claimed that her friends were all working together and they're working reporters. And that was the area where when you look back at it, I didn't see the whole trial. I saw most of it. He didn't really present any evidence on it. So it seemed kind of unsurprising that the jury would say, hey, there doesn't seem to be any support for this. And you didn't really bring anything forward. Although maybe the jury was trying to trade horses here. And you know, that was a compromise. Give her something in exchange for another juror, maybe uh, agreeing on the finding on Johnny. But. Sorry, you're wrong-winded. That's just oh, no, not not at all, not at all. I mean, I don't think there are simple yes or no, um, you know, questions here on this case. But you know, I want to kind of stay focused on the issue of domestic violence, which is the topic. I, we might go off topic a little. I have a tendency to do that sometimes. But um, you know, I'm wondering what you guys think. You know, did this help or hurt? Me too. And you know, th this conversation isn't really about me too, but. I think there's some overlap between domestic violence in general and the Me Too movement, which I talked about in the last roundtable series. But how do you think that this ties into Me Too and domestic violence in general, just, you know, as a society? What impact do you think it's had for us? I, um, I know there's been a lot of uh, concern uh, for women and, and domestic violence victims that this is bad for the Me Too movement, but I actually think that it's good for the Me Too movement because I think that it actually gives credence to um, abuse victims that have, I, I don't want to go off, off the line here and say severity as though some abuse is not as good as other abuse. I think that's, uh, you know, a risky line of thinking. But to me, um, I think it actually gives credence to abuse victims who 
have the evidence that actually can prove what they're saying. And no, you can't always prove it. Sadly, we don't have a perfect justice system. And um, none of us have, you know, clairvoyance where we can see the future or even, you know, looking back in hindsight, I don't really think is actually 2020 because you can't always know all the facts. And so in a situation like this, the reality that we have where you can't know all the facts, I think it sends a message to victims that it's important that they gather facts and that they do talk openly to their friends and family and they do document what they can when they can because um, there is a burden of proof in these cases whether it's a prosecutor prosecuting for dv or whether it is in a you know a, a private litigation a civil litigation like this between two parties there are burdens of proof and so i actually think it's good that victims can see um that they need to bring something to the table. And I think that hopefully in this digital age where we all have our phones with us all the time, um, that maybe they will be inclined to start to document this stuff more. And I do obviously understand that that's risky um, in, in some of these situations, just like the video with Amber and Johnny in the kitchen and he saw the iPad, you know, and he comes and he swipes the iPad, you know. I mean, it is risky to try to document, but third party decision makers like judges and juries, they have to have something to make a decision on. And um, this is the best way to keep the real perpetrators accountable and to protect innocent people who are wrongly accused. You guys, Sylvia, Derek? I agree. I mean, I don't I don't think that this I don't think that this really impacted in a negative way the Me Too movement. I think that I think if anything, it kind of opened people's eyes to everyone has a picture of what they think domestic violence is. They think of all these movies that we've seen with like Julia Roberts and Jennifer Lopez, where it's it's very dramatic, very banged up, bruises, broken bones, things like that. And I think that this trial helped to show the the full array of what domestic violence can really be from just verbal to physical, not just verbal, but verbal to physical. And having the mental health picture put into this, I think also really, really helps to show that, like Danielle was saying before, that um, Johnny Depp's prior relationships shouldn't have had such a relevant impact on the outcome because this particular relationship and the mental health of both of the parties, the substance abuse issues, all had such triggering things that impacted it. And I think that with the Me Too movement, it I think initially people were streamlined to think it was men against women. There were certain things that were had to be done, certain things that had to be said, certain actions that had to be taken. And I think this sort of opens it up a little bit that there's a lot of other things that we need to be having conversations about. That there is women on male violence. There is male on male violence. There's female on female violence. There's more than just violence. There's mental abuse, emotional abuse. There's gaslighting. There's other kinds of traumas and how mental health and substance abuse play a toll into all of that. So I, I think it's actually good and I think it's going to be better in the long run. I think right now it's just, it seems a little scary that when you are saying you're a victim of domestic violence and all of a sudden no one believes you, it's initially women, men, whoever are very afraid to come forward. But I think once this dust settles a little bit and we can explore all the avenues, I think it's going to help people be more comfortable coming out when 
it's not, you know, you don't have to show up with a broken nose and a black eye that you can show up with, you know, the emotional scars and people are going to understand that that too is an issue. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I don't see how in theory this should really hurt the Me Too movement in the sense of, you know, we just saw what happened with Jesse Smollett. And I don't think that harms people that, you know, fully understand LGBTQ plus people are you know, prejudiced against and that there's racial prejudice out there. I think the hoax he pulled doesn't undercut all of that. It just shows that there are some people, they're just horrible people that are going to do things like this. I, I think the Me Too movement though has a big opportunity here and I was, I'm honestly kind of sad to see a lot of people that view this that we have to believe Amanda. Not everyone that claims they were abused is in fact abused. And in fact, a lot of people in divorce litigation in particular use it as a legal tactic to get more property, to get more custody. And so you know, we need to recognize that. And I, I'm saddened that the Me, a lot of people in the Me Too movement don't seem to be embracing the idea that it, it does often go the other way and that people make this stuff up. This isn't something where there's a loss for them. This is an opportunity for the movement to recognize that there are also male victims. And honestly, it's hard for a guy to come out. I, as of, I think, 2017, there were, I think, what, two DV clinics for men in the entire country. There, there's nowhere to go. You go in front of a judge, they don't take you seriously. They believe a, a woman, typically. That's just, in my experience, how it, how it goes this, these days when you see the two. And that you seem to get a lot of that in the Johnny Depp trial, I think too, where I think initially there was certainly a lot of disbelief that Johnny was abused. I think perceptions changed, but that- I thought was. that, you know, Johnny, right from the very beginning, and he just, because of the circumstances, because he was the original uh, complainant, he went first. So he got to tell his story first. And he had a lot of other things in his favor. You know, he, we all know him. We've come to love him. Right. I mean, most people are sort of a Johnny Depp fan and we've known him for decades. Doesn't hurt that he's attractive. Maybe doesn't look quite as good as he used to, but he still looks pretty good. Right. And we all love him. So he's sort of a beloved, uh, public figure. And he really had that going for him and he got to go first. He got to tell his story first. And I, I also think that a lot of the recordings that he had, um, you know, those corroborated a lot of things and made her look terrible. And something I had talked about last week is my concern just for domestic violence victims in general is do you have to be a perfect victim? You know, is that kind of what we've confirmed with everything that we've been watching with Johnny Depp is you have to be the perfect victim and Amber you know, let's assume for a minute that there was mutual domestic violence happening. She wasn't the perfect victim because she was perpetrating it too. So, you know, that's sort of my concern moving forward is only perfect victims are going to be the ones that are believed and, you know, will get any kind of, I, I want to say sympathy, but it's not even about that, you know, protection. Um, that's my big concern going forward. And I think Perhaps I should have a real mental health professional that specializes in the dynamic of power and control that exists in domestic violence relationships to kind of talk more about that is, can it be mutual? You know, I read an article that said it really kind of suggested it couldn't be because domestic violence is really about power and how can both people be wielding the power? Isn't it, doesn't it really just lie with primarily one of them? 
So it's interesting that you say that because I actually, knowing that we were um, doing this today and after the verdict came out, I reached out to a mental health professional who um, I use a lot of times in in cases. And I, I had asked her because I said, you know, this portrayed such a toxic relationship. I said, is there ever a relationship? And I know this sounds bizarre where this toxic relationship is a positive relationship for the two people involved because we hear a lot about you know, and you see it with clients sometimes that they f- they feed off of this and they the fighting when the fighting slows down, they want to fight more when we're close to the end, they think of something else to fight about. And she said to me, she said, the only way that that really works is if you're consenting to that control. And most of the time you're not because the person either doesn't know there's some kind of personality disorder or something, they don't know what a healthy relationship is. So you're basically saying like, would this person thrive better in a relationship that has that power and control dynamic or in a healthier relationship and she said that it's a lot of you know what you were saying that it's there's that differential of power there's the power and control dynamic and the only way that there's not really like a victim versus a perpetrator is that if someone's consenting to it so you know some people have their thing that they like to do but you know if you're talking about more of that power control dynamic in relationships but those things are consented to the person who's not in the dominant position is the one that says like this is where i draw my line things like that and when you're in a domestic violence relationship like this you don't have that ability necessarily to say everyone's always why don't they leave well you don't necessarily have that ability in you because of all the other things that you're going through and that you're suffering so so it's it's really interesting is can there be two perpetrators i think there can and I think I think there was here. I think that at the end of the day, there were two there were two perpetrators. I just think that I tend to think I listened to the you know Johnny Depp, and I think he was more likable. I I candidly was watching some of the stuff that he was doing and could think of ten judges off the top of my head who would not have let him get away with eating candy in the courtroom, laughing, making jokes as if, and when you're representing the defendant in a domestic violence case, you tell him to do the opposite of that. No rolling your eyes, no smirking when the victim says something. And he was doing all of those opposite yeah. things. The jury just loved him. They didn't yeah. care what he did. So now if you're sitting in a county in New Jersey where Christine and I practice, it's if a, if a defendant does that in front of a judge, they take note of that. And they're thinking like, maybe this guy did do it. Maybe this woman did do it. Their credibility is shot. And for him, it was just like, everyone was starry eyed. Like, I don't know if she could have presented something that would have been effective. Yeah. He's Johnny Depp. Yeah. He's Johnny Depp. Going into it. I I thought he maybe could have done this. He got weird as he got older. He, He had a lot of substance abuse issues, all this stuff. And he sat on the stand and everyone just went, I believe him. I believe him, you know, and it was just, and like we said yeah. earlier, she was so over the top. I think that that played against her. Yeah. And I think what hurt her even more is that she was also, you know, beating on him too, right. <laughs> for lack right. of, you right. know, like to put it really bluntly. Yeah. And, and he had overwhelming evidence of that. So rather than us being able to just look at this, like, like how it's been described by a lot of people, it's just a really toxic relationship you know, it seems like every potential inference went in Johnny's favor. That's what it seemed to me. What do you think, Derek? I look. I I, I take the opposite tact here. I, I don't think it's because people necessarily love Johnny. I look at him on the stand. He wasn't necessarily a great witness. It is you know, it's just 
Didn't I thought he was. Really? Uh, yeah. Okay. I cancer and everything. It, it just, it wasn't great. Uh, it wasn't terrible. I just wasn't overly impressed. But then you look at her and she goes from, you know, the sad face, you know, trying to do the waterworks to she turns on a diamond. As soon as it's up for cross, eyes are teared. She is stone faced. I thought a few times she was going to eat Vasquez alive, but she was, you could see the anger in her. And she's off making the faces too. So at the end of the day, I think her problem was a credibility problem. And, you know, was she abused? I, from my point, I just don't know. All I know is she's so non credible. I don't believe a word out of her mouth. Yeah, I think I agree with you. There was, I, and you know, it's the kind of thing it's like, that's the reason we have juries and we want people in person, right? I, we could talk about zoom hearings. I, I don't think they're as effective. I just think there's something that's missing when you're, you don't get to see the person live and see their body language. And there's just subtle cues in facial expressions that I think you just miss when you, it's on zoom, but the jury was there, right? I mean, they saw this live. They saw all of the interactions, even some of the stuff we didn't get to see. So I, I agree with you. And most of America, it seems agrees that she just did not come across as credible. It doesn't necessarily mean that she was lying about everything, but there was just something that seemed inauthentic about the way that she presented her story. And I think what really cemented it for me was towards the end, you know, the crescendo of her story was when, you know, the sex, this alleged sexual assault happened and she was crying. It should have been the performance of her life, but there were no tears. Yeah, and, it, and it was an unbelievable story. I think the, Back to the question that you posed, Christine, about whether abuse can, you know, I'm not a, an abuse expert, obviously, but I don't know if um, if a, abuse can actually coexist, but I do think that power and control does coexist. And if these two people were both trying to control the other person, then they can end up in a situation where two abusive and controlling personalities are abusing each other. Um, and so that's why I don't think in this situation we have a true victim and a true perpetrator. I think they were sharing these hats a lot. And that drama triangle that I talked about before, that's very common, right? There's the perpetrator and the victim, and then there's some rescuer, a friend, uh, one of Johnny's um, employees. Somebody comes in to rescue the victim, but then that victim turns right around and becomes the perpetrator, right? And so it's it's just this dramatic triangle that people get into and when they have especially personality disorders or codependency issues substance abuse i mean things where you're not really thinking clearly and there's some obstruction through your your emotional processing that's where this sort of thing occurs um and the stories that she told to me i mean the sexual violence one was the one that really was the icing on the cake in terms of her credibility I mean, her allegation was extreme. I mean, she alleged that she was literally raped with a glass bottle and that it broke and that she had cuts in her genital area and that she was in severe pain and yet she sought no medical treatment. That, that to me was the moment where I just stopped listening to everything that she said. There was no reality where that, could occur um, that I don't even know that that could occur for somebody who doesn't have her access 
uh, to help and money and, and, and healthcare and all the things. I mean, even for women that are in extreme poverty, uh, you know, you can get seen, right? You can get to an ER, you can call a 911, you can run to a neighbor. Um, there, there's a way uh, most of the time to get out and, and seek that medical treatment. So that story in and of itself was the moment that I just, and I maybe she was ex exaggerating because of the title of, you know, the title of that article was the one that was about the sexual abuse and whether, you know, did she say it or was it her words? I think that was one of the questions they were debating in the jury. Um, but yeah, that, that one was where I sort of. Well, you know, I think the other thing too, that's important here and, and probably in most cases like it is she, at least according to Johnny's expert has borderline personality disorder. And I spoke to a mental health professional about that in, in the past couple of weeks. And she indicated that that would certainly color this whole experience and the way that Amber experienced it, because now Amber is releasing statements that, you know, she wants to speak her truth, that she did speak her truth, that she's being punished. Um, you know, and a lot of the reaction is, but you're lying, Amber. But she, I think that she does believe everything that has, she has said, you know, so in her mind, and I don't know, you know, where the personality disorder begins or ends, but she believes that this happened to her. She believes that she is speaking her truth. She believes that she is a victim of domestic violence. So it kind of becomes like, well, did these things really happen or is it just the way she's colored it? I guess we'll never know. I, I, you know, just because Johnny's expert diagnosed her, you know, officially diagnosed her, doesn't mean that, you know, I'm kind of curious what would somebody else, we'll never know. I'm sure she'll never tell us. Um, but how do you think that plays into it too? I mean, I'm wondering if there's statistics on that. How many people that are in these kinds of relationships do have personality disorders? I think there's a high number and I've, I mean, I've experienced that personality disorder in my personal life. I've seen this personality up close and personal and um, it is extravagant. There, there are these kind of, uh, there's kind of these, what I understand about it anyway, is kind of these three roles, especially for women and women are largely diagnosed more than men with this particular disorder, but there's the queen, you know, can't do anything wrong, dictating, telling other people what to do. Then there's the witch, you know, the, the persecuting, you know, um, verbally abusive personality. And then there's the waif, you know, the woe is me and, and that sort of thing. And what I understand, again, I'm not an expert, but what I understand about it is that, th that this personality can take on these three different channels at any time. And sometimes those personalities are more one than the other. But I noticed on the stand, there was a lot of all three. I mean, she, you know, at one point it was, I'm just, you know, I'm so victimized here. And then at the other point, she was like, I've never considered myself a victim, right? And so it's like, well, you're saying you're a victim, but then you're saying, but I'm not, you know, it, it, it was, it was sad. It was really sad almost to um, witness that, knowing kind of seeing that in my own life and, and watching her kind of morph into these different 
um, personalities. You know what else was disturbing for me is everybody was talking as though the relationship is over, but it's not. No. They were still <laughs> there. They were living it out. It is not over for them, for either one of them. Because if it was over for Johnny, he wouldn't have been there, wouldn't have been in court, right? He hasn't moved on with his life, but neither has she because she's still talking about it too. And I fear that they are going to be that couple. Sylvia will definitely know what I'm talking about. They just battle it out forever. They are never done. There's always something new to fight about. And it just seems to me that they might be one of those couples. Thank God they don't have kids together. Right. Right. But, you know, I hope moving forward, the message that our society hasn't gotten is that, you know, domestic violence victims shouldn't come forward, they, that they shouldn't seek help, especially if they're not the perfect victim. Do you are any of you afraid that that's happened? I think so. I think you have to be. I mean, whether you agree with how it played out, whether you think she was a victim or he was a victim and neither one of them, it's it's not common that you see this type of trial brought out so publicly. So I think it is for someone who is a true victim, I think it's scary. And for also for for someone who has been on the other end, the receiving end of a restraining order that was falsified, I think this whole dynamic was terrifying because there was a lot at stake. So I think, I hope that it works in a way of giving people more courage instead of discouraging them. But I think that it falls on, you know, the legal system and the community that we need more services. I mean, I think that's ultimately what it comes down to. There needs to be better access to mental health services. There needs to be better and cheaper, more affordable access to therapeutic services. And there needs to be, that needs to be more broadcast to like a general population, not just a certain type of person who can have access to it. Because I mean, these are two celebrities. They had all the resources available to them that they wanted. This plays out a lot in everyday life that people that can't afford to go see a therapist for a couple hundred dollars an hour, that's not covered under insurance, you know? And I yeah. think that's what we need to take away from it. Like the, this was, these were two multimillionaires. That's not what we normally see in the courthouse you know that's if that was what we saw all the time people would look at domestic violence differently but that's not what we're seeing and a lot of people don't have access to these fancy legal teams to defend them and put their case forward yeah. and they're talking themselves up there to a judge and but I you know what happened. i think in some ways they're they weren't a lot different than other couples that might be experiencing this because there's still shame and embarrassment, you know, just because I think we, we have a tendency to just put public figures up on this pedestal, but at the end of the day, they are human beings. Right. And I think there's still shame associated with it, right. well, especially for men. I meant to bring this up earlier, Derek, when you were talking is that, you know, I think there's sort of a double whammy for men that are victims of domestic violence because they still have the usual shame and embarrassment. But now, you know, men are supposed to be macho, right? Like we have all ascribed those, um, those kinds of roles to men is that they're not supposed to be victims of domestic violence. You know, they're not masculine if they are. And, it, and I think oftentimes they are believed less for various reasons. Derek. I, for me, at least the, the belief issue was the real problem. I don't think there's a lot of shame in coming out anymore. I think that's it's changed really on both sides. Uh, but a lack of believability is, is a huge problem and not believed by police, not believed by anyone. 
and not taken seriously. I had a judge once ask me, you know, in, in a you know, hearing on a DV issue, what my height and weight was. I, what does that have to do with anything? You know, my my you know eight year old could shoot you with a gun. It, it doesn't have anything to do with it. So I think believability currently is really the biggest problem. And, and it's a discouragementing factor for, for men to come forward too, right? I mean, like if I were to come back, the police are there and they don't haul her off. Now my kids are there alone and maybe they take me away. And, and that, that's a real problem. Well, you know, I also think that also as humans, and we do this in all contexts, not just domestic violence, we kind of have a natural tendency to just assume that however we might react in a situation that everybody else does that too. Yes. I find myself doing it. I have to catch myself, you know, just because I might react a certain way. Doesn't mean that that's how Sylvia or Danielle or Derek or anybody else would react. And, and I, you know, I disagree. I do think there's still a lot of shame because I see a lot of clients, men and women who will say, Sylvia, I'm sure you've heard this. You must think I'm an idiot. Oh yeah. Like a, like a, a mom who doesn't know the fight where the bank accounts are, or even a dad. Sometimes it's the dad. You must think I'm an idiot. Right. No, I don't think you're an idiot. We get that a lot. And how many times do you have, I mean, and I can say in, in all the years that I've been doing this, I've had in my personal experience as, as an attorney, more what I and have been deemed as not real domestic violence issues, whereas the ones that are real don't want to come forward and don't want to, let's just get the divorce yeah. finalized. I don't want to go to the police. I don't want to file. This is going to be more of a hassle. We have children. Whereas you know, like Derek, like you were saying, it's so easy just to be like, oh, I Googled that. How do I get an advantage in a custody case? Oh, I'm going to say this happened yeah. right at the house. And so it's, it's such a, we, I think we're starting to operate from a place of maybe the, is the victim being genuine? And then you see stuff like this. And I think it's just, I think it throws everybody for a loop. No one knows what to do anymore. I also, I, I want to just piggyback on that, Sylvia, because also I think on the flip side for the alleged perpetrator i mean they made a big deal out of johnny's substance abuse issues and and his addiction and things like that and i mean do you have to be the perfect perpetrator i mean like what is it exactly that um folks are looking at and i really think derek's point is exactly the truth it is this is about credibility 100 you know a lot of people can't get all the way to that jury uh, in a divorce, right? Because it's very expensive. So a lot of people aren't actually able to necessarily achieve the credibility event, which is that trial, right? The trial is where the credibility really comes out. And uh, they had the means to do that. And I, and I do think, uh, sadly, our, our system is, you know, it's at a place now where that's increasingly more difficult and more expensive. And I also do agree with what you said, Christine, about the shame, because that happens. I mean, I think uh, Derek and I do business work, but that that happens with business people. You know, you you must think I'm an idiot. I got into this partnership with this person. And, and these these personality dynamics play out in those business relationships just as much as they do in a romantic relationship. And there are often perpetrators. Right. There are often people. Uh, people alleging things to become a victim in order to gain a, an advantage. 
Um, so I think credibility really is it. Sadly, I, I just wish that our system would uh, be a little bit more accessible for for average people that right. don't have the means. Resources. You know what, though? I mean, I wonder if the accessibility that we're talking about is really just in the in the form of education because it's you're we're talking about people that would go and seek out services right but what about the people that aren't seeking out service they're not even trying they're not even thinking about it because they don't even recognize that they're in a domestic violence situation right. you know and i mean we could have an, an hour-long conversation just about that but we all come from varied backgrounds. You know, a lot of people that have experienced domestic violence, they grew up in homes where there was domestic violence. That's normal to them. They don't even know that this is not normal, that other people don't live that way. Um, you know, it's kind of like the, it reminds me of the um, just say no public service announcement that, you know, Nancy Reagan started way back and they kind of determined that, you know, that specific service didn't really work, but I, I think it's more about education. So I don't, I don't know how to implement that. I mean, I think in PA, at least there, there are two different angles here. One is straight up DV unassociated with a, a divorce or custody type situation. And at least in Pennsylvania, I don't know what your states, uh, but in Pennsylvania, you, know, you go in, you get that TRO and you will have a lawyer representing you that you don't have to pay for. So it's accessible to get that protection, at least in Pennsylvania. And, and in fact, when it goes to the actual hearing, you can also have a lawyer represent you there that's appointed, like free, no expense. Uh, for, for me, and the more difficult thing is when it's allowed to be able to be used to economically influence the divorce. And maybe there's not a good way of disentangling that, but if you can take the DV and separate it from the economics, it's much obviously harder to separate from custody because it's kind of one and the same. Uh, but I think that would help if somebody couldn't use like in Pennsylvania, uh, you could get a TRO, get the, the other person out of the house and then refuse to um, separate to split up any of the property for two years. And there's nothing they can do. You have to go buy an entire new house of furniture. And at the same time, you can freeze the bank accounts until they're uh, you know, distributed. And there'll be some amount kind of set aside for everyone to live. But but most of the assets can be frozen and that can also stick for up to two years. And so at least to me in, in PA, like that's a that's a big problem when someone can use that economically and they can be hopeful if they fix the law. But from, from what I'm seeing from the reaction of everyone else, sounds like that's not how it works in New Jersey. No. no. Or Georgia. I mean, it, it's interesting because it's like they have two, they have like PA has, yeah, you could get this representation in a civil matter. I'm wondering if, I mean, I assume it's a civil matter and maybe there's just a Correct. you know a local government or maybe a statewide program that gives that uh you just that go right. to the courthouse and someone helps you fill out the forms and then goes in front of the court and makes the arguments for the tro and then they have assigned someone um i, I don't know how it works I, I i believe it's paid for by the state is how they're funded i don't think you have to demonstrate financial need no wow. okay so no, okay. you can make a million dollars a year and you get that Right. Almost like a victim advocate. Yeah, yeah, very. I would imagine it's very similar, although it's a lawyer. I think victim advocates can be non lawyers. Do okay. both sides get that, or just the the person who's requesting yeah. the TRO? You had a problem. Only one side gets it, and if you're the first person to the courthouse, good luck for the second person getting someone appointed. Yeah, because there are going to be conflicts and problems there. Um, okay. Well, you know what I've often thought is the our whole system, our divorce system, is just 
it's just not set up to really assist people that are in these kinds of situations, a divorce or domestic violence situation. Now, these are mental health issues. These are not legal issues. Yes, there's some law involved, but I, I think Sylvia will agree. I'm going to go out on a limb here, but probably 2% of what we do is law and the rest of it is almost serving like a therapist slash mediator. You know, so it's interesting to me that we have these people that come to a courthouse to address problems that are really only legal in nature by about 2%. We have to completely overhaul the system. I don't know how we do that. Uh, you know, I think there would be a lot of resistance, especially from divorce lawyers who make a lot of money doing what we do. See, I don't know. I don't know. Because I was just thinking about that when, when Derek was saying that they appoint someone. I think how many of our colleagues, you know, that we talk to don't want to handle domestic violence matters anymore because they're too costly for the clients because of all the appearances that you have to make, all the preparation. And we want to focus on making sure we deal with custody issues and all the other things to get someone up on their feet. If the if there was a program where everyone got their attorney for the DV and that was handled separate and apart, I don't, I would like it better. Well, I think that maybe the reason a lot of attorneys don't want to handle the DVs is because if a case starts out with a DV, it's just screaming high conflict. This is a high conflict case. This is not one that's going to probably be resolution oriented. And a lot of attorneys just don't, don't want to deal with that. Yeah. Or maybe maybe there's a, a way where you could we could offer attorneys additional education and resources if they did find that this was part of their practice that they enjoyed, but they just felt they were ill-equipped to handle, maybe. You know, I mean, uh, it seems like there should be a way to merge kind of that, you know, DHS stuff into these services with like a step process. Like you know, initial filing, does this case involve domestic violence? If so, it's like a, a pretrial diversion almost to kind of go over to this other, you know, alternative uh, place. That's and then, yeah, the, the attorneys can seek that certification, I guess. We should do that, Sylvia. Let's, um, let's, let's do that. Let's. I would do it. Start a <laughs> I don't know who we have to talk to around here, but we've got to, we have to change the system. It doesn't yeah. work. It's not working. You know, it's supposed to be resolution oriented, right? People come to court with a problem, right? That's really what they have is a problem that needs a solution. Yeah. But they're they're in the wrong place. It just doesn't resolve this. It just doesn't provide a solution. So I know probably preaching to the choir, but, you know, the, the law is always very far behind where our society actually is. So be nice to see it catch up. Um, but I want to thank you all for your time and your experience and your expertise. Thank you for coming on the show. I'd love to have you on again. If you guys want to revisit this topic or another one, um, I have a feeling we're going to be seeing Deb V heard again in the future. I don't think this (laughs) is over. Um, but for my viewers, thank you for watching. And I'm going to have links to um, all the fine attorneys here websites so that if you want to check them out a little further, you can do that. And thank you for watching or listening. And we'll see you next time. Thanks, Christina. Thanks, Christine. Bye, everybody. Thank you for listening to Wake Up Call, the podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to know more about me, you can find out more on my website, christinaprevitt.com. 
And be sure to sign up for my newsletter where I talk about everything that I'm reading, learning, listening to, doing, basically everything that I'm obsessed with right now. Follow me on social media. Look up Wake Up Call the Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you'd like to be a guest on Wake Up Call or there's someone you'd like to hear on my podcast, please email me at wakeupcallthepodcast at gmail.com. Thank you and see you next time.